Okay, let's turn our attention to the, the Word of God. That's why we're here this morning, to worship Him. Welcome again uh, to Potomac Hills. Uh, again, my name is Frank. Uh, if you're new, please do stick around. We'd love to get to know you. Um, uh, and please don't just sort of run out uh, uh, at the end of uh, the service. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, we'll be reading verses 1 to 10. Um, and while you're turning there, a quick reminder that we're finishing our series on commonly misunderstood uh, stories in the Bible today. This is the last one. And next week, we'll be jumping into our Advent series in the book of Jonah. But let's, let's turn uh, our attention to the word of God from the Gospel of Luke, reading chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who, got, who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this story, for the story that uh, reveals to us that the impossible can happen, that one such as Zacchaeus can be saved. And Lord, we pray that your word would uh, open our eyes not only to the wondrous salvation that comes to Zacchaeus, but also the wondrous salvation that comes to us, of also the sin that necessitates such a great salvation as we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, open our eyes, be with us this morning, uh, help us see uh, what you would have us hear from your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, since we've been talking about misinterpretations and misunderstood stories of the Bible, I figured it would be fitting to start with some classic blunders. And we all know that when we hear classic blunders, we should turn to one place, and that is, of course, the Princess Bride, right? Because there are two that Vizzini uh, recounts to us, two classic blunders. The first being, uh, and the first and most famous, is to never get involved in a land war in Asia, right, obviously. And the second, but only slightly well, less well-known, is this, right? Never go in against the Sicilian when death is on the line, right? Some of you, glad that you guys know those lines, can recite it along with me. Now, those classic blunders don't quite apply to our passage today. We don't have any Sicilians in our, in our passage, I don't believe. <laughs> okay. Um, 
but there are two classic blunders of interpretation that preachers, small group leaders, and students of the scriptures of all ages make all the time throughout the ages, right? And so many of the errors that we've looked at over the past several months in our series can be boiled down to these two errors. So two errors, we've seen them a lot. Um, let's summarize. First error is to focus on somebody other than the Lord Jesus or God. For example, when we were looking at the healing of Naaman or David and Goliath and Daniel and the lion's den, we tend to focus on the characters that the stories are named after, namely Naaman, David and Goliath, and Daniel. But in each instance, the main hero of the story isn't the actual focus of the story. God is. God is shown to be covenantally faithful to a faithless people in the story of Naaman. Uh, the Lord is the one that took down the giant, not David. And God is the one who remembers and rescues Daniel from the lion's den. And in each case, we tend to focus on the wrong person, which leads us to miss the main point of each passage. And you think we would get this since we know that all scriptures point to God and specifically to, to Jesus. We know that from Luke chapter 24, verse 27, which makes clear that Jesus taught some of his uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus that all the scriptures point to him. And so really to make the focus of a sermon uh, to be anything other than uh, Jesus or God is to really make a, 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 a blunder of colossal proportions. Remember, sermons are meant to be gospel-centered. They need to highlight who God is, uh, our need of him, and the surpassing greatness of our salvation in him by the power of uh, his grace. And therefore, the focus has to be on God. The second blunder, which is probably equally easy to fall into, is that we tend to identify with the wrong person in the passage. We all want to uh, figure out who we are uh, and in the story and who we are to relate to. But we're usually pretty bad about getting it right, or at least we in general as sort of Christians in general, right? Um, how many sermons put us in the shoes of the biblical heroes, right? Dare to be a Daniel. Uh, what giants do you need to slay in your life? Be a David, be a Daniel, like, right, be a Moses. All of those go be whatever, right? Go be a hero. We like to identify with the godly, with the hero. And if we're too self-aware for that, right, we tend to just avoid identifying with anyone at all. We sort of, when, we, when that happens, we sort of simply keep the passage at arm's length and look for timeless, clean principles to be reminded about that we can be edified by. Right? But simply put, we're almost never good and rarely neutral. We are even more rarely clean and tidy. And so when we really think about our motivations and inclinations, we realize that we're sinners through and through. Our first inclination isn't to godliness and faithfulness, but to selfishness and to, and to sin. And so here's the real rule of thumb when it comes to this particular error. Find the worst people or group in, in the story, and they're probably you. Okay. The worst people in the story are probably you. We don't stand with Jesus usually. We don't stand on the side of godliness. Rather, we're much more like the Pharisees, the grumblers in the desert, and the cowardly Israelites that refuse to stand up to the giant. 
The scriptures were written to expose this great truth to us, that we are dead in our transgressions without hope, save in the great mercy and love of God. That one hope is shown to us through the work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus is the hero and the focus of God, uh, of the gospel and the scriptures, and we're, we're the needy, sort of terrible folks in the Bible, right? Without hope, dead to rights because of our sins. And so do you see how missing Jesus as the focus of the passage enables us to step into the wrong shoes? That when Jesus isn't the center and focus of the passage, we have room to say that now who's the center? Well, we are. It opens up room for us to be the good guy. And it undercuts the spiritual reality that the the Bible communicates. And so these two blunders may not be like getting involved in a land war in Asia, but they're no less deadly. And so this morning, as we look at the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus, we're going to be using these two big blunders to sort of structure our time. And hopefully we'll be spending most of our time marveling at Christ and seeing our great need of him. So uh, first, let's start with a misplaced focus, a misplaced focus. Unless we make the blunder of focusing on blunders, let's make this quick. Um, So how do preachers misplace the focus in this story about a wee little man up in a sycamore tree? Well, the focus is usually on that wee little man up in a sycamore tree, right? We all know the jingle. You could sing it with me if if we wanted, but we're not going to do that because let's not, okay? But that's where the focus is. It's called the story of Zacchaeus because we focus on Zacchaeus. But and, and that's really understandable, because right there in verse 3, it says that Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. And so we start off three verses in, we see something that we can latch on to. And a ton of sermons latch on to that idea of seeking. The question is, why would Zacchaeus want to see Jesus so much that he would climb up into a sycamore tree? And the question of what drives folks to Jesus is a critical one in the Christian world. It's an important question. And unfortunately, so many preachers get that question, the answer to this question, wrong too. You see, the conventional wisdom says that Zacchaeus was feeling the emptiness of wealth and the unhappiness of being lonely in his betrayal of the Jews. After all, he was a chief tax collector. And uh, remember, Jews didn't really like the Romans all that much and despised Roman taxes even more. And so the contempt and hatred of their countrymen who enabled these uh, onerous taxes to be collected really knew no bounds, right? Tax collectors were traitors, plain and simple, to, to most Jews. And not only because they worked for the enemy, but also because they cheated and swindled and stole by collecting far more than they were supposed to. And so tax collectors were fabulously wealthy, right? The 1% of the 1%. They were, but they were wealthy on the backs of their own countrymen. And Zacchaeus, being a chief tax collector, meant that he oversaw other tax collectors. And so, in fact, he was the arch-betrayer. Right? He was the arch nemesis. He was the worst of the worst. In the eyes of the Jews, he was worse than scum. That position, being worse than scum in the eyes of your countrymen, is generally not a comfortable one. 
right? And so the drive to righteousness, to Jesus, to salvation is an attractive and understandable one, right? He's so lonely, he's so sad, he's got nothing but his money to comfort him. Maybe he's looking for something else, he's going to look for Jesus. And so the focus is usually on chasing after Jesus like Zacchaeus is done. Um, and it goes something like this. Do everything that you can to find Jesus, and he'll see your seeking and save you. That sounds okay, I guess. Um, you know, Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will, seek me, uh, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And so, chase after Jesus with everything you've got. Not terrible, right? But it is, for two reasons. First, it puts the onus on sinful people to do something, to seek after Jesus, right? And that means that salvation in some part comes according to our works. We know that simply cannot be and simply is not true. It's all God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And secondly, it can never happen because our hearts aren't seeking the Lord. Ephesians 2 tells us that before salvation, we were dead in our transgressions, and we all lived in the passions of our flesh, according to the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So not only can we not do it, but we don't want to do it. And so, yes, seek after the Lord. But we can't actually do what Jeremiah 29, 13 tells us to do. Why? We can't seek with all our heart because our heart isn't in it. Our heart doesn't want it. And so, friends, seeking after Jesus misses the point and focus of the text because of verse 10. Read with me. For the Son of Man, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And so Jesus is the one that came to seek and save the lost. Jesus was the one doing the seeking, not Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus wasn't doing any seeking. Jesus was doing the seeking. And so when he looked up in that sycamore tree, Jesus said something really interesting. He didn't say, Zacchaeus, can I come to your house today? He didn't say, Zacchaeus, do you mind if, if I came over for dinner and stayed the night? He said, no. He said, Zacchaeus, I must, I must go to your house today. He saw it as part of his cosmic mission to reclaim the lost, to bring salvation to those who were far off. And so he had to go. He had to. And so while we will never know if Zacchaeus was dissatisfied with his life, it doesn't actually matter. God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, was the one who put that curiosity for Jesus in Zacchaeus' heart. And Jesus was the one that brought the words of life to him across that dinner table. God doesn't meet us halfway. God doesn't even meet us 99.99 repeating percent of the way. God drags us out up from the grave from the desire of our flesh, and he changes us totally and completely. It is all about him. And we know that this is the point of, uh, of the story because of the context, right? Context is king. This story with Zacchaeus is the last encounter before Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. 
right? This story is the last instance of his ministry in the lead up to his Passion Week. His going to uh, God's city to do God's work of salvation on our behalf. That's what's coming up after Zacchaeus. And so it seems fitting that saving a sinner is what Jesus does before he gets ready to go to the cross. But remember, Luke is setting up a larger point about Jesus. And so what comes before our passage is really what highlights what Jesus is doing with Zacchaeus. In the previous chapter, in chapter 18, if you read that, I told you guys to read that in, our, in my weekly thought. In chapter 18, we meet the rich young ruler. He asked what he mu- uh, the rich young ruler asked what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus, after talking with him a little bit, ultimately tells him that he needs to sell all that he has and give it to the poor and then follow him. But the man went away sad because of his extreme riches. And in response, Jesus says the unforgettable line, right? Picking up in Mark chapter 18, verse 24 and reading to verse 27. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard Jesus say this said, then who can be saved? But Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And that's the point of our passage this morning. Jesus, in the lead up to meeting Zacchaeus, has said that it is all but impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And now Zacchaeus, a fabulously wealthy man who is willing to forsake just about everything else and everyone else for those riches, that man is entering the kingdom of God today. So remember in verse 9 of our passage, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. And so what Jesus is doing is he's highlighting the trueness of this salvation, the true inheritance of the covenant that, that Zacchaeus is finally a part of, and the true adoption as a child of God that has really come to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus was a rich man who loved his money, and because of that, it was impossible for him to enter the kingdom of God. One simply cannot serve two masters. You can either love God or you can love money. And so it was impossible for him to enter, and yet Jesus and the Holy Spirit actually did the impossible. They threaded a camel through the eye of a needle, and what came out wasn't a thin red cord of blood, right? But a full-bodied, transformed man. And not just any man, a man of service and of grace. And so Jesus didn't just make the impossible possible, but he actually did the impossible. He didn't just have power over physical things like blindness or the wind and the waves, because right before the rich young rule, uh, right before Zacchaeus, we get the healing of Bartimaeus. So we see his power over the physical. But now we're also seeing the power over the spiritual, that God and Jesus doesn't have just power over physical maladies, but has power over people. Jesus can reach in and change people. And that's good news for us. Because how many of you guys have ever tried to change somebody else? How's that worked out for you? Not well, right? Why? Because it's impossible. But Jesus can do it. And that's good news because it's not just others that need to be changed, but we ourselves. 
because we are the impossible. And not only is it hard to change others, but how many of you guys have tried to change yourself? And I'm not talking about like dieting and exercising more. That's sort of just changing the outside. And that's profoundly difficult, right? Profoundly difficult, but not impossible. But have you ever tried to stop being a sinner? All of us, I hope, have tried to do that. How's that going for you? Not great, right? Think about that sin that plagues you. How does it go when you just try to stop it on your own? When you just say, oh, I did it again. I'm just going to stop. I just need to stop. How does that go? It doesn't work. It's impossible. We need somebody to change us. At the very least, we need somebody to come alongside us to help us change. But most of the time, we just need somebody to just up and change us. We're just like Zacchaeus, having chased after our various idolatries. And we here in 2020, here in Potomac Hills, are selfish, self-absorbed people. We might not betray and cheat like Zacchaeus did or like that other person over there. We can sort of look around. But we chase after our own idolatries, and we cannot serve two masters. We will either serve God or we will serve the self. And unfortunately, the self usually wins out if we're being honest with ourselves. And that's what sin is, right? And in sin, we are hopeless. We are helpless. It is impossible for us to turn to God on our own because we simply don't want to. We sin because we're sinners through and through, not because the thing that we do makes us sinners. We sin because we want to. And yet Jesus is our hope. He does the impossible. He saves us from ourselves, from the penalty of sin, and from sin itself. And so Jesus actually changes our desires. He changes what we want. And we see that in Zacchaeus. Before, before Jesus, what did he want? All he wanted was more, more of everything, specifically more money. But after he met Jesus, what did he want? He wanted more, but more what? More righteousness. And we see that in the fruit of the repentance in, um, in his pledge to give to the poor and to repay far beyond what the law required of him. You see, Zacchaeus was only required to give repay 10% of what he cheated, to give 10% interest. And what do we see? He gives 400% interest. That's going above and beyond. And what's he, what he wants is he wants to make it right, that it's not enough to just do what is required of him, but he wants to do more, that he might show the grace and the mercy and the riches that, has been, that have been lavished upon him, that he might lavish on others. And so what do we need? We need Jesus to do the impossible, and he did. And that's the kind of person we want to go to Jerusalem to be our substitute, right? To hang in our place on the cross. We need someone to do the impossible for us, and that is what Luke is saying. That Jesus does that, and he did that. He did the impossible by dying on that cross and then rising from the dead in victory over sin and death. So we can breathe a sigh of relief, right? Whew. Praise God for this story of the impossible happening. Praise God. But why do we care other than to rejoice that we'll be able to meet Zacchaeus in heaven? Why do we care? 
what does, what, what does this impact our lives? How does it impact our lives? And it's in this move toward application that we get to our second blunder, that we identify with the wrong character. Right? When, when we look at this story, we finally breathe a sigh of relief. Finally, a story where I don't have to be the worst person. Remember, it's just a rule of thumb, so sometimes you, that rule of thumb doesn't apply. Finally, I don't get to be the worst person of the story, right? Like, it, this is great. I get to be Zacchaeus. I get to, he is a sinner who has been saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Praise God, I get to be Zacchaeus. I don't have to be the worst person. And that'd be true and defensible. But it would miss the point. I think it misses, when we do that, I think it misses the truth about us the force of this passage in our lives. You see, while I think we can absolutely identify with Zacchaeus because he's a sinner saved by grace, and so am I, I just don't tend to be like Zacchaeus. What do I mean by that? You see, first, there's an evident joy in Zacchaeus's life that seems to burst from the pages. Am I that joyful about my salvation? Or has the wonder and shine of it sort of dulled over the years? Then what about Zacchaeus' costly repentance? Am I that eager to atone for my sins that I might gain righteousness? Am I that eager? When I repent, which is probably less frequent than it ought to be, do I jump to, into it with the gusto that Zacchaeus did? He says, Lord, look. Behold the fruit of my repentance. I am so excited that I get to tell you about what I'm going to do to make things right. Are we that eager to repent? Am I overjoyed to have the opportunity to set things right, that I've been delivered from my sin and that I now get to pursue the consequences of my actions? The consequences of Zacchaeus' actions, that he cheated and swindled and that he was a tax collector, what, were the, what are the consequences of his actions? He loses half of all that he has. He gives it away to the poor. And he also has to repay, he ends up repaying fourfold of what he had cheated. And so he instantly becomes poor by 50%. And again, we see that the law required only 10% to be repaid, Right? that he only has to repay what he stole with 10% interest, but he pledges 400%. Do I look at my sin and happily go over and above what is required of me? Am I like Zacchaeus in that way? And the answer is obviously no. Generally what I do when I get caught in sin and I have consequences on my life is I try to mitigate those consequences with everything that I have in me, that my sin becomes less costly, but not Zacchaeus. No, I am far more like the crowd that grumbled and muttered about Jesus saying, he has gone in to be with a man who is a sinner. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And so here in 2020, what am I? I am jaded, I am cynical, I am less optimistic. I tend to write people off thinking that they can never change. I look online at the various opinions filling my 
uh, newsfeed on Facebook and I shake my head at one side or the other. And in my, heart of my, in, in my heart of hearts, what am I saying? I'm saying things that I would never say aloud, that's for sure. I'm saying, how could they possibly think that? Are they stupid? I can't believe how uncaring they are about issue whatever, X. And if they think this, I don't want to be their friend. Or if they think this, they're a lost cause. They will never listen to reason, and it's impossible to change their minds. That's exactly what the grumblers are doing. Why are you going to Zacchaeus' house? He's a scumbag. He supports the Romans who tax and, and oppress us. We hate him. Why are you going to somebody's house that we hate? And remember, the Jews had every reason to hate Zacchaeus to reasonably ostracize him from polite society, to write him off as a lost cause. They had every reason to do that. They had seemingly righteous reasons to do that, to demonize and to hate. Do you see what I and the grumblers are saying in our hearts? It's not just that I don't want this person over here to be saved, which is not particularly Christ-like or gracious, but also that these people are, functionally speaking, unsavable. Why bother with someone like Zacchaeus or an abortion doctor? They're never going to change. They're scumbags who deserve judgment that's coming for them. They're lost, and it's impossible. They're beyond grace and mercy. That's what we say in our heart of hearts if we take off all the politeness. And yet Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus and these kinds of lost people were just the kind of people that Jesus sought out. And our unbelief and sin goes further still because it's not just about writing them off, these folks that I think will never change. It's about the hypocrisy that is evident in our lives when we write people off. I said in the last point that we rejoice in Jesus doing the impossible because we are the impossible. And so those of us that are Christians in the room this morning have experienced the impossible happen in our very own lives. We have watched as our hearts were transformed from loving and wanting sin to wanting Jesus. That is at the very core of our testimony. And yet when we write people off, when we refuse to reach out to those that Christian society despises, we announce that we don't believe that Jesus can do the impossible for them. So let's get specific. Let's talk about some groups of people that we have trouble believing that God will save them. Let's talk about some groups of people that we as upright and good Christians don't really want to be saved, don't want to see saved. So, abortion doctors. For Christians, abortion doctors are a group of people that are reviled and despised for the work they do, and rightfully so. Does that sound like a modern-day Zacchaeus to you? How often do we pray for them? Sure, we pray for the, the folks that are going to that, that clinic, right, that they might choose life. We pray for the pregnant mothers and the unborn children, but how often do we pray for the doctors doing the killing? Do we really want to see them saved? How often do we reach out with them, reach out to them with the gospel? 
Or do we believe them to be lost causes? What about serial killers? They've destroyed countless lives, wrought so much terror in, the, in their communities. Think about the Beltway Sniper, right? They have stepped outside of the ordinary bounds of evil. We have TV shows whose sole premise is catching, stopping, and often killing serial killers. We rejoice when each one goes down. But are we seeking them out like Jesus would have? to save them, to bring them to the gospel. And interestingly, some of the worst in history, Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, profess to come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ before they died. If those professions were true, and I hope they are, what an amazing story of God's grace to transform extraordinary evil. And yet, something seems kind of off about their salvation, right, in our hearts. We're like, what? That doesn't feel right. And what is that? That's our sin whispering lies to to our hearts, saying that we should not rejoice when a sinner comes to faith in Christ. And then let's talk about something a little closer to home. Within this room, there are a broad range of political opinions, Within this room, there were votes cast for both, well, I guess not both, but um, for Donald Trump, and uh, there were votes cast for Joe Biden. It's a divisive election, and it continues to be divisive. Each side doesn't think very highly of the other, and often we simply write the other side off as stupid or blind or brainwashed by the liberal media or racist Not only are these your brothers and sisters in Christ whom you're writing off in contempt, but also you're seeking, but are you seeking out those across the aisle that you, you might display Christ to them, that you might share the love of Christ to them, that you might be the instrument in which the impossible happens in their life? Do you think that the power of the Holy Spirit to sanctify and change is insufficient for them? In short, with all of these people, in all of these cases, do we believe that the Lord will do the impossible in the people around us, as he did in us? Or do do we believe in our own wisdom that says that these fools, scumbags, traitors, and terrible people are lost causes, unchangeable? Friends, we have seen the impossible happen in our own lives when Christ saved us. And so we are called to be optimistic people, people that believe in the power of God to do the impossible. And because we have Christ, we are able to soak up the disappointment and sadness when we don't see the Lord do it. And so when we see, when we go year after year, when we've been praying and and working on that one family member that refuses to come to Christ, we should not lose heart. Why? Because the Lord might do something impossible as he did in us. We will never know the day when he will do the impossible. He can and he will. And so let us not lose heart. 
So what does it mean to be a Christian? Looking at the, the story of Zacchaeus, it means that we want to be like him. We want to love the things that the Lord loves him with the same priority that he loves them. And right at the top of the Lord's priority list is the lost. He loves them, which is us, so much that he died on a cross for, for them, which again is us, right? We're the lost. He didn't write them or us off. He didn't nail them for all the ways in which they sinned or nail us for all the ways in which we sin or continue to sin. No, he sought them out that he might speak the words of life to them as he sought us out to speak the words of life to us. And he demanded to go to their house today, not tomorrow, but today, that he might bring salvation to their house. And so we have a sense of urgency as well. Christians in America tend to be fine with the saving portion of seeking and saving the lost. We would love for, the, for folks to turn to the Lord Jesus. We are fine with that. We tend to have a problem with the seeking. We simply don't want to go after the lost in love and care because it's uncomfortable, it's messy, it's not socially acceptable, and because, quite frankly, a lot of times, we don't like them all that much. But Jesus sought out impossibly lost people, people like us. He saved them and us against all odds while they were still sinners, rebelling against him no less. It was not easy for the Lord to come and save me. There was nothing about me that was attractive to the Lord. But he saved me because he set his love upon me. He decided, he declared, and so he did. And so it shall be for us. We shall and will declare our love for those that are hard to love. And we will love them. Why? Because the Lord loves them. And so let us consider these questions this morning as we close. Do I believe that the Lord can do the impossible in others as he has done in me? And if so, how does that change the way that I interact with folks that I don't like or I think are far away from God? Think about that. You need to pray. I'll close this in prayer in a few moments. Father God, I confess that I don't believe in your power very much. That I don't look at those that I've been hoping would change for a long time and they haven't. I don't believe that you're actually going to change them. That I have succumbed to believing in my own wisdom that I know what's going to happen. That I know what you're going to do. Lord, I pray that you would put that to death in me. That I would see as you see sinners in need of shepherds. Folks uh, that need to hear of the great and surpassing power of your gospel to change the impossible. Lord, would you soften my heart that I might love those whom you love, folks that are lost just as I was and am in a lot of ways still. 
Lord, would you reveal my hypocrisy and my sin to me? Yet also be reminded that in the midst of all of that, you came and died for me to deliver me from that power that binds me to looking at others with cynical eyes. Lord, I pray that you would change us this morning, that you would change our outlook on people, that you would show us the surpassing greatness and power of your gospel to change hearts. And so, Lord, be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the benediction from Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat>